0: Welcome to They Just Get It. I'm your host Tyler Chisholm, and today I'm honored. This is a special edition episode that we're going to be releasing on a very important day. Something that's close to my heart, and uh, some content that I really wanted to bring forward. I think we need to shed some light on this, and grow to understand why it is important to us and why it's something we need to remember. This is the Remembrance Day episode, and I'm here with retired Colonel Jim Denny, who is a close personal friend of mine, someone I've known for, had the fortunate privilege of knowing for many years. And Jim and I were recently chatting, and the subject of Remembrance Day came up, and we thought no better opportunity, no better reason to sit down, get the microphones in front of us, and have a conversation of why this is and continues to be important for Canadians. Jim, welcome to the show. Mm, Thank you very much. It is a pleasure to have you on board. And like I've often said on this podcast, I get to sit and have amazing conversations with strangers, but oftentimes I get to have conversations with people that I know, but maybe don't know the full perspective. So I think today's going to be one of those days. So I'm going to turn the mic over to you here. Maybe give us a little bit of your background, where your relationship is with the military itself, and then we'll unfold and see where our conversation
1: goes. Uh, Thank you. So I guess I'd start being uh, one of those little boys that just, Dreamed of flying. I um, grew up in southeastern Ontario. The, never had any experience with army cadets or air cadets or any of those sorts of things. But my father had served in the Second World War. He went ashore with the Glengarry and Dundas Highland Highlanders and uh, had spent six years overseas. I mean, obviously, decades before I was born and came along. So, I mean, some exposure as a as a young lad, but. I mean, ultimately, you know, what, what welcomed me into the military was an opportunity to go to one of the military colleges. We were a pretty modest family, had an opportunity to, you know, get an outstanding degree and, and largely even, you know, step into an experience that helped me learn uh, who I was a great deal about myself growing up.
0: Interesting. So you started, you finished high school and then from there went to military college.
1: I did. I joined uh, Dayton myself, which is way back there. <laughs> I didn't rate, I finished grade 12. We'll leave the years out of it. But, okay, that's uh, fine. That's fine. <laughs> uh, um, after grade 12 in Ontario, I went to Collège de Saint-Jean in Quebec and uh, did an undergraduate degree in business and computer science. Uh, Interesting. Five years at the college, because uh, I did a prep year in Quebec and... Uh, I aspired to be a pilot, and uh, through the summers, you know when most folks would be out sort of having working terms or whatever to go back to a Ford school, I spent summer trainings uh, you know beginning to learn my craft as a as a military officer and first summer in Borden uh, crawl around in the sand and the poison ivy and learning you know being stressed and truly beginning to learn my own physical limits and mental limits because they push you pretty hard. And then the next two summers, we're in Portage La Prairie, starting my my pilot selection process and pilot training.
0: Interesting. And similar to the civil path, you start literally with getting your basic, basic your, the basic fundamentals of aviation behind you, and then you were going to work your way up through there?
1: Yeah, I mean, the program has changed, uh, you know, in the last number of years. But if you can imagine, I had no previous flying training whatsoever. And so the first summer, we did all the ground school pieces and so on, and then we did... Uh, about thirteen hours of flight training, you know, just enough to really get to the selection process, right? And then uh, went back to school for a year, came back, got a four-hour refresher, and they sent us solo. And I'm kind of going, okay. Um, Solo at 17
0: hours after being off and coming in doing four hours fresh.
1: Exactly. I guess that was the biggest part of the test. If you survived, then maybe you got to go on and become a pilot. But uh, yeah, I think I soloed
0: back and I sold around 14 or 15 hours. And that was, yeah, you wore a tie and they cut your tie off and stuck it up on the wall at the, in the hangar. And yeah, that whole thing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So for you, the military, not only there was a lot of family history, was there any was this a preordained path for you or is just something, because obviously your father was in the military through, you know, obviously one of the biggest events I think we often tie to remember, say, which is world war two and world war one, or is it just something that you chose on your
1: own path? Um, you know, my dad was very active in the militia, so I, I was around it when I was growing up and in southeastern Ontario the you know, the Highland Games are a very big thing, you know, the the tradition yeah, and, Maxville. and Maxville. so on. Yeah. Yeah. I just drove through Maxville the other day and all Ab- the banners are up. Yeah, all the tartans
0: through the middle of downtown.
1: <laughs> yeah, I was there the summer. It's an outstanding event, you know, and uh, and so I mean there was exposure, there was nothing preordained. Certainly yeah, I have three siblings, I'm the baby, but the three siblings, none of them, you know, went down the military path and there was no no expectation that that would be the case. Uh, that said, you know, what I do have memories of my dad talking about, uh, you know, going to enlist, was, as many many Canadians did when, when the call came, and he had he had actually tried to enlist as a pilot, and I found it amazing that they they said no, sorry, you're too old. He was, he would have been about 24. He had a degree, he had he had a sports scholarship to Clarkson University. You know, when we had a business degree and they said at the ripe old age of 24 that he was too old, they wouldn't take him as a pilot. And, uh, and so whether there was a little bit of, you know, maybe I can help fulfill part of dad's dream or whatever, but, right, you know, it, right. it was my dream. Uh, there was no doubt about it. And uh, so nothing preordained, but certainly an okay. interest.
0: i just always curious of what role that plays. So just backing up to your, to your father, 24 years old, scholarship in school, he doesn't, quote unquote, have to go no he all. He, cho- he chose to go with along with many young men and women at that time because it was quote unquote the right thing to do
1: yeah yeah i mean there's countless canadians that i mean even today you know i mean canada has always had a volunteer force from that viewpoint and so you know people who step up are you know are are people that just choose to do that i mean it's uh there's a call for many for service and you know i hesitate to to say duty in this day and age but ultimately it's uh you know, there's a calling that people answer for service, and he felt that calling. I mean, at, you know, at the time, you know, there were difficult times in Canada. You know, coming out of the depression times and so right. on, and uh, many, many Canadians saw it as an opportunity to see the world. There was truly that sense of adventure, you know. And I think in a lot of instances, they they had they honestly had no idea what they were what they were, really, what they were getting really for. stepping into. What year did he uh, enlist? Uh, you know, I'd have to go back to the the regimental history and take a look at it, but I'm going to say it would have been probably around 1940, 41, because he... Okay, so still early days as far as World War II goes. Things were really... Yeah. Everyone, yeah.
0: everyone still hoped that Hitler would be out of Poland by the fall. And all. I've read... My wife's... Um, grandmother kept newspaper clippings because uh, her uh, grandfather was an aircraft mechanic and it was very interesting going back and reading some of those and the rhetoric the rhetoric and the propaganda that was going on at that time mm-hmm. oh germany's not they don't really mean it you know hitler's not going to continue knowing how it unfolded it was quite interesting to go back and look at some of those things which i think might be relevant in the world we live in today
1: mm-hmm. yeah yeah he was uh, you know ironically they phoned him back phoned him Called him, sent a message, something. Yeah. In those days, Telegram, but, uh, yes. no cell phones, obviously, but uh, and said, you know, big mistake. This was maybe two or three months later. We'd love to have you as a pilot, and he said, sorry, but you know, after he turned me down, I went across the street and enlisted in the army. And he left Cornwall, you know, in that summer, went to Gordon Head, BC, did his training, and then went overseas. And they were, I mean, many, many thousands of Canadians and others were, you know, on the island of Great Britain, if right. you will, you know the. Which is essentially was a staging, staging
0: for years point, really, for years
1: before the before the the invasion actually took place, so
0: was he involved in combat at all before the invasion? No, no, interesting it was all training and building up to that event, yeah yeah very, very interesting, and clearly he survived and made it made it through
1: yes he uh he went ashore on d plus one with the Winnipeg rifles and then rejoined his own regiment very shortly thereafter and spent almost six years overseas all the way up through the Ardennes in Holland the entire the entire campaign, the Stingy Highlanders were very active throughout that.
0: Some of the fiercest fighting, well, it was all fierce fighting then. For yes. sure. Some of the stories I think we've all seen from movies and, uh, you know, the, the different, thing, different band of brothers and a lot of things that I think they depicted that, you know, from an yeah. American perspective, the Canadians were heavily, heavily involved. Yeah.
1: You know, and I think to this day, I mean, the Canadians remain an extremely effective fighting force, a very, very well-respected fighting force, and uh, they were absolutely in the thick of it. If you... I mean, there's several battle honors that uh, that they wear proudly on their colors, and right. for very good reasons.
0: Well, through World War I and through World War II. And I think something you just touched on, I think, is very critical. And I had this conversation, or I've, I've heard it on the radio, different conversations, like, what defines a veteran? You know, I know when I grew up, it was very much always tied to World War One, World War II when I was in school when I was younger. But you look now at the role that Canadian military plays globally and respecting veterans, I think, across the board. And something you and I talked about offline, and like, what defines a veteran? It's not that they were in World War II or, you know, even a lot of those, those, those men and women aren't with us anymore.
1: Yeah yeah in fact you know very few remain of the of the survivors of world war 2 uh, i mean the technical definition of a veteran is anyone that you know has completed basic training and and was honorably discharged from service in the forces and so you know i think um you know perhaps most hold the impression that you know veterans must have been in combat and so undoubtedly you know people that have seen combat or seen peacekeeping, peacemaking operations for which Canada is very, very uh recognized, reputed very well. Um sometimes you see, you know, atrocities in peacekeeping situations that can even exceed things that you might see in in combat, hard combat at times. So, you know, we have thousands of Canadians, young men and women, especially now that have returned from Afghanistan in deployments of that nature where where they did see, they did see combat, where they had terrible losses. And, uh, you know, we think the survivors, the, the survivors carry a special scar sometimes right. that, uh, that they need help with. And, you know, we expect tremendous things of our men and women that we send into those scenarios because, I mean, they're living in the very harshest of conditions that you'd ever imagine, uh, you know, daily with the risk of, of losing their own life or sometimes extremely sadly losing the dearest of friends who are family to them. And uh, then we bring them home and we expect them to just simply reintegrate into society, you know, in downtown Canada, where, where most have no experience whatsoever with the kinds of conditions that they've had to live and operate in. Right. And we can't understand why they're dealing with some of the, some of the heavy burdens that they carry you know and extremely sadly we're seeing you know suicide rates amongst men and women returning from afghanistan which are just woefully unacceptable you know and it's not because these people are weak it's because they've seen you know
0: been exposed to things that the human psyche is not equipped to to process yeah do do you feel and we're getting maybe down a different road but i think it's valuable to talk about that i know that you know the past generations it was you know bottle it up don't talk about it you know keep calm carry on stiff upper lip all that do you find as a military and someone who's been involved in the military in in recent years are we becoming more are we paying more are we paying more homage to that are we giving are we creating more programs like is it getting better
1: i guess is the question i mean i do you're you know 100 percent correct when you think of you know the the boys, if you will, from First World War, Second World War. I mean, they you know, I think in many ways that's why the legions were created and so popular. I mean right. they had a place to go to, they had a fraternity, if you will, of you know, of colleagues, of, of shared family of shared experiences. And you know, and yet outside of those colleagues and they never spoke of it. I think you'd find most military people, you know, families of those who have served would echo those sentiments that their fathers never, or extremely rarely, spoke of, you know, of their stories. Right. Uh, so the good news is that we are getting better at it. You know, I think the the other news is that there's still so much to be done. You know, to to truly understand PTSD, and and while the programs are coming into place, I think the the piece that is still needs the work is to understand that it's actually okay to ask for help. It's, yes, uh,
0: as a fundamental, take, take that and just put it across society as a whole. Yeah, it's it's not weakness; it's it's actually strength. It's the exact opposite.
1: Yeah, and I think you know, it's uh, to declare that vulnerability, to recognize that you're human, that there's a you know there's a terrible burden here that's being being carried, and to ask for help in order to not only to uh, allow you to be you know uh, highly functional if you ever have to go back into that environment, but in order to deal with the day to day mundane aspects you know, of society right. and, and reintegration. It's very important.
0: I had a few friends that were in the military. They were in the, in the U.S. In, in, in recent years, in the last 10 years. And they're like, really, once you've been shot at, and like sitting at the kitchen table really has a hard time. You have a hard time relating. Yes. <laughs> it just changes your whole view and psyche of the world. Something you and I chatted about off online, which I think it's interesting. There's an older generation that didn't talk about it. As, in, as Canadians, we haven't experienced it on our, on our soil. This, these were wars that were fought overseas for a lot of people. It's very abstract. It's in another place. Do you think maybe – and this is something that part of the reason why I want to do this podcast was to bring more awareness to this day and more awareness to – we're a little bit insulated from it as the you know everyday Canadian – I'm going to put myself in that list – I know people, but it was always very abstract to me. So the stories weren't told. My village wasn't liberated by Canadian forces. Uh, you've talked about some of your experience, maybe you'd like to share just of being overseas and the amount of connection that you're going to get in rural France to the Canadian military is stronger than what you're going
1: to get here at, at home. Yeah, it is. And yeah, I mean, it's improving here. I and mean, we look forward to, you know, talking about some of, the, some of the things that are unfolding here. But yeah, when I, part of my history then in the military was, I was fortunate to uh, to do pretty well on the pilot training. I wanted to fly single-seat fighters. That took me across to Europe in the early 80s when the Cold War was still very, very real. Uh, highly operational environment. You know, I mean, you learn how to operate. You learn what operations are all about. And it's it's real. The Cold War is real. And one of the experiences I had, you know, just getting over there as a, a new junior officer was uh, serving on the honour guards and often around your remembrance day, we would go, you know, throughout Europe to many of the, the Commonwealth cemeteries and especially in Holland, and Belgium, I, you know, it, and I say this often, I'm as always saddened in many ways to see the, and to witness the fact that, you know, the Dutch children tend Canadian war graves, you know, they, they're almost assigned a grave. They take great pride in it. They have deep, deep understanding from the experiences of their own parents and their own families of of what it meant to live under you know the auspices of a of a Nazi regime they they understand what it meant the hardships and and what it was to be liberated and you know he, tremendously thankful based on the stories and the shared experiences that their families have passed along and you know for me to stand you know amongst those commonwealth graves often canadian graves and to see these children take such pride in looking after our war dead, and yet then to come back to Canada and see that, you know, we're we're kind of lucky if we get people to stop for 30 seconds of silence. To take, you to know? take a minute of silence. And, you know, I think, I mean, there's a good side and a bad side to that. I mean, the, the good side is that people have the freedom that they don't have to stop. you right. know, And that's that's why all of those men and women you know stood up and you know and sadly too many gave their lives <clears throat> but i think there's you know there's there's a debt of remembrance for the sacrifices that they made and i would never suggest that on a remembrance day that we're honoring war that we're you know as you you hear too often is a kind of rhetoric that surfaces is like we're not glorifying war and i you know as one who served in the military you know i think just like a fireman or anybody else i mean you you become expert at your craft, but you hope that you'll never have to apply it. Right. You know, yes. I mean, a fireman doesn't sit there and thirst for fires. He hopes he must be good at putting them out, but he hopes that perhaps he never has to. And I suggest it's the same for those who serve in the military. I mean, they must be good at what they do because it's uh, it's a profession in which second best is simply not good enough. Right. At the same time, there's no there's no glory in war. And, uh, you know, I believe that Canadians enjoy incredible privileges, incredible freedoms. And uh, at times I think we take that for advantage because, as you said, you know, we've always shipped our people overseas in order to uh, participate in these operations. And so other than the fact that sadly too many don't come home, we've never actually experienced those ravages in our own country. No,
0: like you said, we, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's such a double edged sword because we're incredibly fortunate that we've created a world that we don't have, we haven't, we haven't had to deal with that. I I, not, I don't have fear of driving home and having a bomb crater on my street. That's mm-hmm. not a reality I've never had to deal with. But that distance can make it become a little bit. It's not personalized. You don't. You, you have never experienced it. And I think that that is, like you said, the debt of remembrance. I think is a very. It's an interesting way to think about it mm-hmm. it's that responsibility because this you know unfortunately the freedom that we experienced wasn't free
1: no, and you know what is what is true is that every one of those people that did not come home were just like you and i i mean they had they had families they had dreams they had aspirations they you know they <clears throat> they stood up to to answer a call of their own free volition and and then sadly, those dreams are, are never fulfilled and so uh, those are their choices our choice I hope is, is one to remember and to be thankful and to offer gratitude for their sacrifices because that's what allows us to enjoy the freedoms of this wonderful country that we live in.
0: I think it's so powerful what you just said of their own free will no one was forced into it in that, in that case the people, especially in Canada what we're talking about when yeah. you look at some of the wars that were fought the other side it was a bit of a different, it was a different set of rules in terms of who we were you know, fighting against and what we were fighting, what we were fighting for
1: yeah, and I think in large measure that's what honestly makes us so very good because, right. you know, it is, people do choose, they do stand up. And, you know, the, the training, and it, and it is a brotherhood. I mean, the, the family, the, the ties, the strengths of the bonds that you create through military service um, are phenomenal. It hurts desperately when you lose a friend.
0: I can, yes, I can. I I can't. I can't imagine. I can't fathom what that would be. You know, to have your best buddy beside you one day and then not there the next. But you, the fact you all chose to be there versus being conscripted under a totalitarian regime or a fascist <laughs> environment or a dictatorship. It's a, it's a very different set of. You know, buy-in when you're there versus the way the Canadian forces have always come together through choice. Mm-hmm. People like answering the call of duty, w- whatever it was. It's a personal reason for them to be there, and our debt to to respect that and taking a day and taking a minute. Um, I know you're involved with a lot of things here in Canada. How long since you were actually been uh, not not in the military yourself?
1: Yeah, so I retired. I had the, the incredible privilege of commanding far Wing uh, in Cold Lake. And I retired from the military in, in the late summer of 2000.
0: Oh, so not that, yeah. not that long ago when it comes to, because you were 28 years in the military. Yes. Not that we're doing the math or anything on, on that. <laughs> <Yeah. clears throat> and obviously you went into the business community after that, but I, you know, I understand you're still heavily involved. You brought up something the other day that I hadn't heard about, which was no stone left alone. I, I think that's something that I, I was kind of blown away by it, or just talking about the how do we get the youth of today more aware to why, how we got here. <laughs>
1: Yeah, so no, I, and I only became aware of it last year and the, you know, the privilege of speaking at one of the ceremonies here in Calgary, uh, hugely impressed at, you know, just kind of an innovative volunteer approach that, you know, that a Canadian citizen had taken in terms of saying, you know, and it, and it steps back to that, you know, story that I related about the fact that the Dutch children were tending every single war grave uh, in the Commonwealth uh, cemeteries overseas. And so, Really, the concept behind No Stone Left Alone is uh, it's, a volun- it's a a charity organization. The concept uh, really is around ensuring that there will be a poppy placed on every single grave in all of the cemeteries around Canada. And so thus far, oh, that's, that's, it's that's- in several major centers, and and uh, you know it often occurs several days in advance of mm-hmm. Remembrance Day, largely because you know, the schools are closed and so on. But, you know, again, it's not in any way intended to to honor or glorify war, but what it's really intended to do is to educate our Canadian youth of the sacrifices, the kinds of sacrifices that have been made. And so the children, you know, routinely are kind of, they're bust to the cemetery. There would be perhaps some, some military dignitaries or retirees who would offer a few comments and then you know the duty the challenge for each of the children is to you know just disperse themselves throughout the cemetery and place a poppy in every single one of the war graves and as they do that it's not about just dropping a poppy on on the gravestone it's actually about pausing for a single moment or a few moments and you know reading the name and the details of that that young sailor soldier airman airwoman that that is at rest there and And understanding that in so many cases, you know, they may only have been 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. And, you know, even for children who were, you know, in the middle grades of, of primary school, eight years old, you know, at the age of 13, looking at this and saying, oh, my gosh, you know, this individual is only four or five years older than I am. And that's, you know, the sort of thing that they had stepped up and how they lost their lives, it's, and it's meant to have an impact and it's not, I like, guess I say, nothing about the glorification of work, but it is about saying, look at, this is what it means to be Canadian that, um, you know, we, I enjoy these freedoms because people such as these who lie here yes. in this cemetery, uh, stood up and answered the call for me.
0: I know myself when I walk around and I've toured military, uh, cemeteries all around the world and the age is what hits me when you do the math on the dates 17 18 19 years old like over 20 is almost stands out because there's such and you think about that was you know that's brothers sisters families you know fathers that never became it's incredibly sombering and the age i think is something that really when you think about what a 17 year old my nephew just turned 17 and his biggest thing was he got his driver's license and he's thinking about going off to school and being a rower. Like this isn't even on his, even on his mindset yeah. because he's not in a world where it's top of mind. It's not something that, that needs to be. It, and to be honest, I mean,
1: it's a, it's a beautiful thing that it's not a hundred percent. Right. It's, it's because uh, of
0: these sacrifices that it is. Yeah. Um, Something that I think is also important and something that I think about, it's easy to think about the past. These were, like you said, veterans from World War II. What role do you see? And I know we touched on it earlier, but I think it's positive to circle it back. The world is still not, at peace. It's a, it's a tumultuous world we live in. And the role that the Canadian military mer, military plays, and I don't know, maybe just some comments on your perspective of obviously someone being very involved. And I know that over the last recent years, our Air Force has been involved with campaigns around the world. How important it is to to, to, to maintain our vigor and to maintain our, our be, be ever vigilant in keeping this safe. It can always be taken away. I think that's something, I don't know, is important to talk about.
1: Well, <clears throat> I mean, you're right. The world is not at peace. You know, and I think... Um there's just way too many examples of areas where turmoil, you know, is still in place that, um, that Canadians have always been good at going into and assisting with, you know, peacekeeping or, you know, peacemaking, you know, a slightly more aggressive posture, but, you know, but not, not war fighting. I don't think, I mean, Canadians have never sought out the opportunity to create, you know, wars. And, um, that's
0: a, that, I think that's a very important to clarify. It's a bit more answering the call versus creating it. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, that said, Canadians are extremely well-respected. I mean, they're very well-trained. And, uh, and I think that's that's a big part of, of where we're at. And so, you know, from my viewpoint, I, I take a look at those who continue to serve and who thankfully will serve in the future. And, uh, you know, Canada will never have a huge military. But it's important to recognize on the world stage that uh, having a military is an element of your national power right. and you know i think canada deserves to be respected on the world stage and you know there's there's a certain you know there's a certain contribution that is necessary on that world stage in order to be counted amongst those whose voices matter and that means you know on occasion and not because we're looking for it but on occasion we need to be able to step up and make a contribution to assisting in the reestablishment or the creation of peace or the monitoring of peace in some of these environments. And, you know, having served for the 28 years that I did, I think what's what's incumbent upon Canadians then is just to make sure that our men and women who answer that call have the very best equipment they can possibly have.
0: Set up for success. Mm
1: -hmm. You know, and what I would, one of my dreams, if you will, would be to to take a look at something like the Australian model where, you know, when it comes to the lives of our men and women, we need to make sure that they're going to have the best equipment. We're going to make sure that we're not using, you know, military uh, equipment acquisition as any kind of a political football. We're going to create some kind of a bipartisan par- committee that can, you know, shed the colors of any any political party and simply roll up their sleeves and buy the very best and make sure that, that our men, men and women are, are uh, well looked after well equipped and able to answer the demands of the circumstances that we drop them into
0: that's very inter- it almost seems ridiculous that that's what that isn't our mandate
1: mm-hmm. well y- y- yes it does yeah, <laughs> And I think you know. what you said
0: about the political football, I certainly <laughs> the last 10 to 15 years of my own just being more aware of what's happening politically on on, it, on the national stage, I would say it absolutely is that.
1: Yeah, and I mean, i am you know, this is not a political agenda by any stretch, but I just, you know, undoubtedly they're hugely capital intensive. They're very, very expensive acquisitions. Right. And so it's, you know, we need to make sure we're getting good value for those purchases, there's no doubt about it. But, you know, I guess you take a look at that then and say – you know, we can look at the most recent example of, you know, the, the F eighteen program and say, well, you know, we're asking people to step into the equivalent of a the Formula One race and we're giving them a Volkswagen that's twenty eight years old in order to get into this race and well, by the way, we're gonna drive it for another ten years. And we you know, our political masters might say, uh, it's okay for the men and women who are serving to go drive that Volkswagen, but I'd certainly never put my own child in that Volkswagen. Right. And you know, and having served and having having led and having carried, you know, a moral, a tremendous responsibility for the well-being of the men and women who wear that uniform, uh, it it troubles me greatly that we can't ensure that they have the best of equipment in order to succeed in the, in the demands we put them in.
0: I think it, you know... At- At the end of the day, I believe it ultimately ties back together because if we're not taking the time to remember and know how important it is, it's very easy to then, well, we'll, why do we need that? Why do we need to spend that money? Can't we spend that money somewhere else? But if you look at historically and you take that moment to look at where we've arrived to and the privileges that we have because of those men and women that we kept safe or didn't keep safe – you know, it, it's so part and parcel to a set of beliefs around oh, what role does the military play? Because we live in such a privileged, and I will say that very boldly, a very privileged part of the world. We are so fortunate, we won the lottery where I was born. I have no question about that. Yeah. Because of the sacrifices that was made by people before us and our ability to go and influence my, my cousin was in Bosnia and I recently was there and visiting some of the museums and, you know, call it what it is, I visited the Genocide Museum in Mostar in Bosnia and to think about his role there and now to understand when he came back and just he was a different guy yeah. and the role we played and you know we weren't part we weren't actively part of that war but yet uh, there was things that went on there that were uh, the next level in terms of atrocities
1: mm-hmm. yeah when you stand on the ground and take a look at you know one home that's you know literally shot up and bombed out or is is nothing more than a you know a shell of what it was and the home that right next door is in perfect shape and you, under, you begin to understand the dynamics of how the ethnicities or the religions and these things play out, you know, it's, I mean, it's unfathomable in Canada and that's, that's the beauty of our existence is that it is unfathomable, uh, unfathomable in Canada. And yet, you know, we ask our men and women to go and, and to, to try and bring order back into circumstances like that. And, uh, they're marked by it. They are very different people when they come home.
0: Well, you're dealing with fundamentally different cultures, different belief structures. It's so foreign for this level of acceptance and the the love thy neighbor that we do experience in, in Canada. We have our little pockets, but it's so trivial compared to some of what happens on the world. What's happening right now? What's happening today? You know, Russia just put troops into Syria this afternoon. You know, this world of, you know, but I'm going to drive home today and everything's going to be great. You know, the least I can do on Remembrance Day is go out there and spend spend the time.
1: If the worst you ever have to do is complain about traffic on the way home, you're in a pretty good place.
0: Yeah. 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 These are challenges. These aren't problems. That's right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Something else, I think, that is a great opportunity that's often overlooked. It's right in our community. We have fantastic, a fantastic military museum here in Calgary. I've have also been to the one in Ottawa, which uh, obviously standalone is a fantastic facility. But like the one in Calgary was five minutes from my house, and it took my dad coming for a visit and looking for something to do on a Saturday morning. With that, we went to the military museum, and it was a it was a really I really encourage people to go experience that. I think it's one of it's a fantastic facility. Now, if you have a thought on that,
1: I do. I mean, the military museums in Calgary is uh, is the second largest military museum in canada it's uh again you know there's some wonderful educational programs and it uh it it represents all three services you know navy army and air force and uh, again it, it's just a gem that resides within the city limits and uh, something that is absolutely absolutely worth a stop for everyone
0: no, and I think of all, of all ages, it's, it's it's very interesting. It's engaging. It depicts Canada's role in, in multiple types of conflicts. And mm-hmm. I think it's so important to get our eyes up that we're not, when we talk about Remembrance Day, we're not talking about veterans from World War One and World War Two. You know, and I grew up, that was the subject, the role that Canadian military has played throughout. And I think the last few years, it's kind of come up again. It seems you know, the last 10 or 15 years, we've been very active on that stage. And like you said, we've had death we've had very real things I think for years didn't seem like it was talked about the way the way it has been in the last 10 years.
1: Well you know when you think of the most recent conflict that we were very prominent in in Afghanistan you know we lost 159 Canadians or probably you know in the order of 2,000 2,500 personnel who were you know physically injured and that you know that doesn't even begin to count those who you know, carry some of the mental images and mental scars that the wounds, uh, you, the wounds you can see, which are un- un- equally important. Yeah. and and so, you know, they are today's veterans. They are. It's not that beautiful old gentleman, you know, that uh, sits with the blanket over his lap because it's cold on Remembrance Day. It's you know these are these are men and women who are integral to our Canadian society now, and they've made a huge contribution on a on a foreign stage, and perhaps. You know, perhaps they've now left the military or they may carry some scars and need some assistance. But ultimately, they have learned, you know, the, the benefits of, of discipline, of leadership, of service, of accountability, of teamwork, of, of contribution. I mean, they're wonderful, hugely contributing members of our Canadian society and uh, absolutely worthy of a really good look for the employers out there when when they're looking to, to bolster their ranks.
0: I could not agree more. I think it's very easy to look at the military from the way Hollywood has taught us to look at it, which is false. Mm-hmm. You know, I had the privilege of having, you know, yourself as a coach uh, back when in tech and and then I, and Ron Gidegger as well and really getting to experience the true, um, the skill set of a military leader and what, what it, it helped me dispel some of the myths. The, you know, the top-down, hierarchical that, that's not really how it is. <laughs> there is a level of camaraderie and a level of caring Mm-hmm. intense caring that I think that is created in an environment that from my personal experience just builds a fantastic sense of character in, in, in people that it's maybe hard, it's, you're not going to get that same experience in other places that that level of intensity of like you said finding your own personal limits with your brothers and sisters beside you that's that's a special environment that needs to be showcased as like a pinnacle part of our society not something to be taken for granted or forgot or forgot about to be bold mm-hmm.
1: yeah and I <clears throat> mean speak often about you know the differences in in leadership that i've witnessed you know having made a transition into the corporate sector and so on after leaving the military and yeah i mean it's it's just a different beast you know but the 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 military military leadership when you're in when you're in operations there's not a lot of time for debate i mean it you know it's rightly autocratic because it needs to be i mean there's not a lot of time to to you know should we go this way or that way well sorry we're going this way however you know outside of those circumstances you know i think the the military leader has learned incredible skills in terms of harvesting the knowledge the experience the very best ideas of everyone that he or she surrounds himself with in order to achieve the mission because that's what it's all about and what's what even more striking in terms of what i saw is that you know the the responsibility that you carry a, as a military leader for the well-being not only of the men and women who are serving but of their families is 24 hours a day it's not it's not 9 to 5 it's it's 24 hours a day and when you're on deployed operations uh you know there's a rear party that stays behind in order to look after you know perhaps the wife and the children or whatever to make sure that they're in a good place because there's no way that the men and women who are overseas or wherever will be able to fully uh lend themselves to the task at hand if they're concerned about how, you know, their families are faring of back home and so there's there's a 24-hour a day well-being there's there's a and I, and I don't wish to dismiss you know the leadership that I've witnessed in industry but there's a there's a depth of care that uh is on average, by nature, right, incredibly deep and far different than what I experienced of you know civilian leaders in various That's companies and elsewhere that I've worked.
0: And you look at everything and it's a response to context. And you look at the level of intensity and kind of what you said, what's on the line and that you need to be 100% present in the moment and thinking about the people that that you surround yourself with from a twenty four seven perspective, I would argue that is different. And the cultures that I've encountered, where companies have that and they truly do care about their people, it, those are different cultures. They stand out. So, you know, how do we borrow and and be connected to that? And what can we learn from that for the, those of us who are, don't have a military background? That's very. that's a huge opportunity.
1: Yeah, and I'm. <clears throat> you know, I've had seventeen years in sort of corporate and senior public sector now, and and. I could not agree more passionately with you know, with what you just offered because I'm you know I I firmly believe if you get the culture and the leadership right that people will invest themselves in in achieving great things far far more than if they're just looking at nested spreadsheets trying to figure out where the numbers are headed you know and so I hold the belief and I know it can be done because I've had the opportunity to lead it but if you can get a, a workplace to a place where uh, you can divest yourself of the cynicism that is far too commonplace in in a lot of workplaces where people truly care about each other and and they believe in the vision that you know the leadership has created you will achieve great things it's
0: such an important lesson I always look at what, what can you borrow from other environments and we think of Remembrance Day and we think of as just a moment in time or a day or a minute but if we break that up and look at it from a 30,000 50,000 foot level and look at all that, that we can take from that and what it's brought to us as a society and how we can bring that into our own lives and I think this is no, this podcast for me is so much more than like okay Remembrance Day it's important no we need to look at that as, an, as a part of our society that has brought us huge fortune but also can bring us huge learning and I'm, I'm a huge believer of there's good ideas are floating around everywhere. How do you bring them into your life? It's just such a huge, a huge opportunity to look at that that I think often gets overlooked because of we, ha- we have the wrong impression of what it is or what it isn't.
1: Mm-hmm. I think, I mean, the first piece of what you said is you must first have the courage to be circumspect. You've got to be willing to pick your head up. In in break away from the treadmill, you know, break away from the matrix, whatever <laughs> whatever analogy you want to use. But you you actually need to stop and get your head up and take a real deep breath and say, "How's it actually working for me, anyways?" Right. And are there not are there not other ways? Are there like where else? Who else? How else? How do I how do I take a look at you know importing, you know, even being open to challenge and as I say, having the courage to understand that. Uh, you know, you you truly should be exploring ways to expand your own boundaries, your own knowledge always in order to grow. That's what we expect of our society. That's why those men and women stood up and made the sacrifices they did.
0: To give, to give us that opportunity. Absolutely. You know, and I, I'm going to take to heart what you said about the debt of remembrance. And, you know, if that, but don't—it's not just about that. It's about that opportunity and digging in and seeing it for more, and not that you have to go down a huge road of discovery to embrace this. But if people walk away from this podcast and think about, you know what? Wow, I'm going to take a minute. I'm going to go to one of the, to go to a ceremony. I'm going to expose myself to this group of people, standing in the in that in. I've been on minus. I think a few day, a few years ago, it was minus 38, Minus mm. thirty. We're at the military museum. My wife and I go every year. And when I grew up in Quebec, it was observed, but it was almost at the side. And I moved here, and I made a conscious decision that I would make that an active part. And I think it's also from meeting, meeting people in the military and realizing there was so much more that it offered to me than, oh, wow, they died so I can have this amazing life. I can learn. I can take advantage. I can meet people like yourself and be exposed to something new. And to me, that's what Remembrance Day is to me, for sure. It's certainly how it's evolved. And I think it's evolving every year, even after this conversation. Mm. Uh, where will you be this year on Remembrance Day?
1: Uh, <clears throat> well, unfortunately, I'm going to be out of the country because I... Uh, <laughs> I, Sorry, I, put you, I didn't realize I put you on the spot. <laughs> I was asked uh, if I would, and I would have done so in not even a not even a heartbeat. But I was asked to speak at the uh, at the No Stone Left Alone ceremonies. But uh, uh, my own personal studies and personal growth are still underway. So I'm going to be in Hawaii on a retreat, uh, working with a number of exceptional people around coaching and passion of leadership and continued growth. So. My uh, my moments of silence will be spent probably standing on uh, on a beach in Hawaii. And it may lend you the impression of just being a, a nifty place in the sand. But ultimately, uh, you know, those moments will be extremely powerful for me just in terms of standing uh, with the ocean hopefully splashing over my feet. You know, not too many months ago, I stood on the, the beaches of Normandy where my father went ashore. And those will be the moments that I'm recreating.
0: Yes, and that's a good point. You, you can you can be anywhere. You don't have to be at a ceremony. I do encourage people to go, especially if it's something you you haven't observed. That, that moment of silence is important, but take some time out of your day and and go. I also believe in being around people with a shared sense, and everyone that's standing around is there for their own reason, but we're all there because it matters, and we recognize that, and I think that's, that's incredibly, incredibly important. If anyone feels moved or feels compelled, is there an easy way for people to reach out or get in touch with you, maybe LinkedIn? Uh, I know you're always open to coffees and and coffees and mm. conversations with people who might be interested in this, or coaching, or just chatting with you. Uh, any any recommended means for them to get in touch?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm <clears throat> I'm certainly on LinkedIn, and uh, it's a pretty easy email address. It's just my name, Jim Donahy at gmail dot com. Oh, and uh, very deep passion for helping people find you know the the depths of who they are, whether they're business leaders or or just folks in general. You know, there's the human potential is so vast, and sometimes it just takes an opportunity to sit down in a you know, wonderful, frank conversation like this, where you can look somebody in the eye and say, you're special. You just need to figure it out.
0: And I'm happy to help help you on that road. Yeah. Um, yeah. I will say thank you. And I'm going to close. Jim, thank you so much for coming in today. And you you and I have had a lot of great conversations, inspiring conversations for me about this topic. and when I knew Remembrance Day was coming and the idea of being able to put this out and to have a voice where I can share it with people and if even one or two people listen and it gets them to think about this in a different way, that to me, this is a this is a success. I'm going to finish with a statement that that you sent me that, of course, I think I've heard before and possibly we've all heard, but I think it's, it's good to, to bring it to the forefront. For they died that we might be free. They shall not grow old. We shall remember them.